Uh, do take your Bibles and open to Revelation chapter 15. Uh, if you don't have a copy of your own, grab the one in the P-Rack in front of you. Uh, Revelation 15 is on page 1036. And just, just a word that if uh, you were intrigued by Gerald mentioning the prodigal son but don't know where that is, that's Luke chapter 15, which you'll find on page 874 in those Bibles. So if that's something you haven't meditated on in a while, that'd be great. Write down that page number, 874. Take that Bible, and uh, you can use that. We're going to look today at Revelation chapter 15. We spent the end of 2024, 2023 sorry, Christmas season looking at the songs that Luke recorded for us uh, surrounding the anticipation and birth of Jesus. They all had fancy Latin names. They have a long histories of use in the, in the church. I thought we would use one more week as the first week of 2024 to think about one more song together. Uh, this time, the song not anticipating what Jesus has done, but celebrating because of it. So let's look at the Lamb's song in Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4 together. As we look at a new year, times of transition, uh, Bible reading plans, you know, resolutions, whether you go for resolutions or habits, or you've just checked the whole thing because you're tired of making commitments that you break. You know what we need as Christians is this hope, this confidence, this joy. I know it's sort of cheap word for that is optimism. I feel like optimism is really good, but cheap word, sort of wishful thinking. We need something deeper than that to endure with patient joy, and that's this confident hope, real confidence that what God has done in Christ is saving and glorifying and secure. So we're going to look at Revelation 15, 3 and 4. Uh, we're dropping right into the middle of maybe one of the most debated books of the whole Bible with all kinds of symbolism. Uh, I wish I could tell you that I had the whole thing put together. It's a little bit embarrassing as a Christian for 30-ish years, minister of the gospel for 20-ish, and a pastor of this church for over 10 to say, I'm not quite sure how to put all of Revelation together yet, because I'm not. But I'm pretty confident this song is the song we're going to sing. And it's a, great, it's a delightful song. We drop in Revelation 15 at the end of the, the predictions of the beasts, the dragon raising up beasts that are persecuting God's people, 144,000 who've been sealed and, uh, and rescued out of that. Uh, and in chapter 15, John sees another sign in heaven. I was going to start in verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1. I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image in the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with gold sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So much intriguing. Yeah, we're going to focus on verses 3 and 4, the song of the Lamb. But I think it's important to see the context, because it's important to recognize who's singing this, as we'll unpack that as we go. 
what I think we take from this, beloved, is that when we see God's salvation, we sing his praises. When we see God's salvation, we sing his praises. So that's what we're going to think about together. But first, just the fact they're singing. The saved sing. That'll be point one. The song there teaches us to sing about two different, two particular things. God and his ways and his works. And then God's worldwide glory. So we'll work through the song. That'll be the themes of our meditation. That the saved sing. They sing about God's ways and his works. And they sing about God's worldwide Because when we see God's salvation, we sing his praise. So the saved sing. Uh, We've done a series of songs we saw all around Jesus' first coming. Here at Jesus' vindication, uh, the salvation of the saints. We see them singing. I think it's worth just stopping, especially because they mention, right, um, in verse 3, that what they're singing is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And the song of Moses is a reference back to Exodus 15, which Gerald read for us. So it's striking, striking to me, thinking about this, how much the saved sing throughout scripture. Uh, starting in Exodus 15, that, that Gerald read the song of victory. In Deuteronomy 32, at the most, end, of Mos, end of Moses' life, he gives Israel a song they should sing. We, you're reading through Chronicles. One of the things you may have noticed <clears throat> is that David establishes singing at the temple. Uh, there's lots of genealogies in Chronicles. There's, they all work from the fathers down, except for three, which are different. So I, therefore, I, I take it highlighted. The three singers and their genealogies work from them back up. Uh, I don't know how much you want to make of that. A couple of the guys I read on, on that this week were basically saying like it's supposed to show us that God's work sends through history, but the singing is ascent to heaven. Yeah, maybe that's too much. I don't know. But they're clearly different, right? Marked out, the establishment of the monarchy establishes official singing in the worship of God. And then we collect the Psalms headed so many of them by David as the work of a songbook for all of God's people. Um, Psalm 511, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Isaiah 12, 5 and 6, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be be known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Hebrews 2 tells us Jesus sings, saying that he will tell our name your name, the name of the Lord, to his brothers in the midst of the congregation. I, that's Jesus, the Messiah, will sing your praise. And then, of course, you probably know this, but Christians were commanded to sing. In Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. I'll just read the one from Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. Uh, Paul writes, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit. What's the first thing that happens when the Spirit fills you? Is you address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Not crazy sensational things. Singing to each other. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to do all the way through the scriptures. When people are saved, they sing. When the prophets prophesy coming salvation, they command singing. When Jesus praises the Father, he sings. When Christians gather, we're commanded to sing. And I think it's worth noticing that because it's so weird in modern America. Do you sing anywhere else? in a big group of people on a regular basis? I don't think we do, right? Song schools have alma maters. So you might sing that like at a graduation ceremony, uh, maybe at the sporting events. Sporting events are probably the only place where we really sing the national anthem anymore. Um, which, which Gerald mentioned this, and now I'm going to say it. Say it I, think the fact, I think the fact that we still sing at sporting, sporting events and sporting events and worship. I'll be able to meditate on that. Um, um, 
it used to be a much more prevalent activity. It used to be much more widespread in culture. We sing every Sunday. It's a weird thing to do in modern America. Work crews, ships crews. We have songs that come down to us because they sing while they work together. Men used to sing robustly together. Like I said, schools have alma maters. But we've, we've, got, we've had a shift. Music has changed in the last hundred years. I mean, everything's changed. And at the risk of sounding like the curmudgeon who's like, ah, go to the good old days. I don't want to sound like that. But I do want us to be aware. Until about 150 years ago, at the most, if you wanted to hear music, you had to make music. That's most of world history, that if you wanted to hear music, you had to make it. Somebody in your family had to break out a violin or a piano or a guitar. You had to, you had to vocalize it and singing with a voice. Uh, it's only been about 120 years that we've been really easily able to record and play it back. So now that's what we expect. Our whole expectation about music is that professionals who do it really well do it for us to listen to. And they don't even do it that well. They have auto-tuners that make them sound even better than they are. And so we expect this like superhuman level of musical performance is what music should sound like. And then we just are supposed to consume it. And that's how we've been trained to wince at anything that's not professionally done. But the, the Bible's clear. Most of human history is clear. We, we're supposed to not just consume it. We're supposed to make music. We're supposed to produce it together. We're supposed to sing. So I was just reminded, I said, say about that, we, we gather at church partly, not just to hear the word preached. We do. The word is central. But it's central not just in the preaching, but in the music too. And so when you gather, we, we gather, not just to consume music, but to make it, to sing it together. I would encourage you at home, be working on that habit. I mean, that's odd. If you hear about revivals in history, one of the things they pretty regularly say is that you would walk down the streets and hear different you know, families singing the praises of God. We, we just don't do that anymore, again, because we assume we're supposed to listen to it, not to make it. So be weird and make it part of your family devotions. Um, I, I don't get many opportunities to do this. I'm going to take the opportunity to explain how this drives some of our musical decisions here. And by ours, I really mean mine. Um, we have very minimal instrumentation and vocalists, and we have no formal choir, and that's deliberate. Because we're so trained by our culture to consume music, the more we, and studies have shown this, I think, if I'm reading them right, you know, that the more you make this stage look like a concert stage, the more you will sit and consume it. The more the worship music looks like a concert, the more the congregation defaults into listening. But, but this is not the point, right? Sean and our musicians, you're the choir. We're the choir. That's what we're supposed to do. And so that's a very deliberate decision we make about kind of the way we do our music and why we do it. So I don't do a lot of songs on popular Christian radio either. Uh, partly, um, partly because some of the songs on popular Christian radio you could just as easily sing to your girlfriend if you just swap out the names. And that just makes me kind of cringe. But mostly because it's, it's here's this reality. It's fun to listen to music. It's Maybe I just said that wrong. Um, the kind of music that's fun to listen to is not usually the kind of music that's fun to sing together. It's fun to sing in your car when nobody else is listening and you're singing along with somebody. But it's not usually very fun to sing as a group. It's too syncopated. The, the, the beats and rhythms are, are too off. You just can't do it very easily. And the kind of music that you can really belt out as a group is not very fun to listen to on the radio. Uh, and that's just that's the reality of the way music is, which is uh, 
mostly the reason why we sing the songs we sing. Hymns are different than pop music because hymns are designed to be sung by lots of voices together fairly easily. Uh, pop music is designed to be listened to and enjoyed, and it's fun. It's not usually good to sing as a congregation. So uh, some of the musical decisions we make revolve around this idea that we're commanded to sing together, and it's just a different thing than what we're naturally trained to do with music these days. Um, it's also why we include psalms, because we're supposed to learn to sing and what we sing about from the scriptures. Um, they were given to shape how we sing. Um, again, sort of the difference, modern music is aimed at creating emotional responses, and listening to a couple of people lecture on that, the, the schools who teach musicians have pretty well narrowed it down and identified what chord progressions will create what emotional response in you. That's popular music designed to create an emotional response, but scripture, as I, as I read in Ephesians, is singing as a church is designed to teach us and encourage us together with the truth. Um, and so we, we learn to sing what the scriptures teach us to sing, and, and sometimes that's really uncomfortable. The Psalms, I really, really, if we sing Psalms, they should make us uncomfortable. Even if you just consider the song of, the, of Moses, which the saints are singing <clears throat> in heaven, and the way that it glories in the Lord as a man of war, the Lord is his name. I don't think that easily rolls off our lips as something that we celebrate uh, with a clear conscience <clears throat> just easily. Um, that's kind of the point, maybe. Uh, not, not maybe. I think that is the point. The songs are supposed to press us out of our natural assumptions about life and the way it works and how our emotions should respond and press us into the way reality is, who God is and what he's like and what he's doing in the world. So we're not singing for the feels. We're singing for the truth. And if we sing for the truth, our emotions, our affections, our desires should be shaped by what we sing. Which again, the, the musicologists will tell you that that is true. Singing engages your whole person in a way that almost nothing else does. We really are shaped by what we sing. So, uh, they sing. The saved sing. <clears throat> and they sing in Revelation 3 and 4 about two things. And the first is God's ways in God's works. That's verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. <clears throat> the conquering choir sings of God's works and his ways. So <clears throat> they're great and amazing. They, those words together mean shocking, powerful, awe-inspiring, and amazement. Uh, nobody sits sort of serenely on the side when they are an eyewitness to the mighty works of God and says, oh yeah, I saw that coming. That makes sense. They are awe-inspiring when you see them. They are shocking and unexpected. <clears throat> in Exodus 15, that was the triumph of God over the wicked powerhouse of Egypt. It's such a familiar story, it's sometimes hard to remember how shocking it would have been an entire enslaved people, uh, enslaved by the most powerful military uh, <clears throat> juggernaut that the world knew at that point, that part of the world knew at that point, uh, were just sent away without ever fomenting rebellion on their own, because God just acted. He, made the, he sent awe-inspiring plagues and judgment, and then he, he made the Egyptians so generous that they showered them with silver, gold, and wealth as they left. And then when Pharaoh changed his mind and said, I want him back, he parted the waters, uh, the Red Sea, so that Israel could cross, and he kept them parted just long enough so that Pharaoh could be drowned in them. And they're standing on the edge of that sea and witnessing amazing, shocking, awe-inspiring acts. And 
if you remember Moses right before that great deliverance, you know, his instructions to Israel and their fear was just like, you just stand and watch. Just stand and watch. Great and amazing are your deeds. God delivered his people through judgment of those who rejected him. And we have the same thing here in Revelation. <clears throat> this conquering choir has been delivered in the face of hostility and opposition and persecution. <clears throat> um, forces, supernatural, earthly, and terrible. With the ability to kill entire you know, nations of people <clears throat> are arrayed against them. And they have conquered the beast and his image and the, the number of his name. <clears throat> and they stand before the throne in their deliverance, saying, great and amazing, awe-inspiring and shocking. Who would have guessed that we would be here looking at the glorious grandeur of God <clears throat> when on earth life seemed bleak and frustrating and futile? It's, you know, we have the same, all the same themes from Exodus in, in this section of Revelation, the plagues, the deliverance, the sea, the judgments poured out. It all unfolds in the presence of the nations. Great and amazing. The people who saw uh, God work throughout history record that all through the Old Testament. And the people who saw Jesus act were regularly amazed. We see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that the gathered uh, congregation around him amazed at even just the words he says. How can anybody teach like this? We see him do these amazing acts. His disciples watching him walk on water, right? They are standing on or beside the sea here in, in Revelation 15 because their Savior did that first. He has authority over all of creation and chaos. From that to raising the dead, we've never seen anybody do this to such an extent that <clears throat> at the end of um, Jesus' life, the ruling authorities are considering not just how can we kill Jesus, but we've got to kill Lazarus again because everybody's going to believe in Jesus because of what happened to him. Great and amazing. And then God raised Jesus from the dead. So much so that his apostles never abandoned their trust, never abandoned their witness, despite their intense persecution. But they're not just sort of demonstrations of power to show off or to flex, right? Jesus is not just flexing on the world. They're also just and true. Great and powerful, amazing, shocking, awe-inspiring, and just and true. His ways are right and good. <clears throat> Your boss might do that, flex his organizational muscle, just to remind you who's in charge. Our governments do that. Um, political parties do that. We do that. Right? Dads, moms, haven't you overreacted to some disobedience in your child's life and looked back and thought, that was probably uh, uh, more than I should have done in the moment, but it sure seemed like I needed to exert my power in the, in the moment that it happened, right? Uh, even when we're well-intentioned, our ways are not always just and true, but he always does what's right. His acts of might and power, awe-inspiring wonder, is always just. Always good. Now, reading through the judgments in, in Revelation, you might be tempted to think, well, that's a little over the top. I mean, if you just keep reading the seven bowls that follow on after this song, we might be tempted to think, wow, Necessary? All, all that, is that, is that really necessary? But, but that's, that's the thing. Yes, they are necessary. They're, they're not over the top. The worship of God, our maker and redeemer, is the most central thing in our lives. Our worship of him is the thing that marks us out as either humble, repentant 
children or rebellious enemies. Maybe Egyptians thought they were over the top. They weren't. I just remind, when we think about that, think about how just and true God's ways are, and you think, well, he just drowned an entire army in the ocean. Right, but you, you, you note he doesn't just go doing that, kind of willy-nilly. Like, ah, you know, I think I'll show how powerful I am. Let's drown them today. Moses had warned over and over, just verbally, like Pharaoh, you're not going to win this battle. And the, es- the plagues had escalated to such a point before this awful final judgment that surely Egypt is without excuse. Any Egyptian paying attention would know whose God is the true and living God with the power to accomplish all that he intends. This rebellion, I mean, this, this judgment at the end of the Egyptian exodus is the final straw of a series of patient, deliberate warnings. And the same will be true at the, the final judgment when Christ comes back. No one will stand before Jesus and think, if only I'd known. No one will stand before Jesus and think, that judgment is off. When he returns, every knee will bow. Every knee. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On that day, there won't be a question. His ways are just and true, that the judge of all the earth does right. And we may doubt it now, right? His throne may be shrouded in clouds and thick darkness at the moment, so we can't see clearly how his ways are just, but on that day, there will be no shrouding darkness. It will be clear. He is just and true. And so they give him two names in verse 3, tied to those two realities about what he's done. And he's great and amazing, is the Lord God Almighty. And just and true is the king of the nations. Almighty is um, the um, the same word we get omnipotent from in Greek. It's omni, all, potent, powerful, all powerful. He He can do everything he wants. He has no limitations that hold back accomplishing his will. He is all powerful. Now, that doesn't mean he can do whatever we demand that he does. So that's kind of the silly things that get thrown out. Um, When people, you know want to be comforted and not have to deal with God, they say things like, well, could he make a square circle? Doesn't he have all his power? He's all powerful. Can he, can he make a rock so that he can't lift? I know, I know. I just have like a really serious argument. argument. <laughs> I do with that. I got that. I got that. I got that. I know. I know. I realize, like, that's just, that's just word games. Plus, no bond. Nothing in the scriptures and no Christian who has thought this through would say that God can do anything at all that we could imagine. Omnipotence means he can do everything he wants. That he accomplishes everything he intends. And God does not want to make square circles. That's just silly. He wants to bring glory to his name. Peace on earth. Righteousness and holiness and goodness. Judgment on wickedness and sin. He wants to exalt Christ and some of everything in him. And there is never weakness or sickness or infirmity that keeps God from being able to do exactly what he wants to do. When he wants to do it, for the best good. So there's silly uh, objections like the you know, square circle thing. There's more serious objections. You know, like if he's all good and all powerful, how is there still suffering? Uh, that's, a, that's a more substantive objection. That's a more, that, that question can be asked sincerely. Um, why not heal all our sicknesses on our timetable in famines and wars right now? Why allow the atrocities to go on? Follow the news, there are atrocities going on in the world. 
it's a more serious objection, but there's an assumption smuggled in. We just need to, to recognize that we say he's all-powerful and all-good, and therefore he must act like this. The questioner, that argument assumes that we can say what the best good is with certainty, that I know what the best good is that he should do. And once you realize that, you're like, oh, but, but do you? <laughs> do I? Do any of us? No. None of us know what the best good is for all the world in all of history to sum everything up in Christ. None of us can definitely and confidently say that at this moment in time, I know what the best good would be. So once we realize that, we, we're brought back to saying, he's almighty. And he is the king of the nations, just and true. He's not just raw power, but he's power that rules in justice. And that's the thing about a king. We probably think mostly about kings as the person that gets to boss everybody else around. And that's part of it. But in the ancient world, the king was also the final court of appeal. The laws that were established were established because he uh, either uttered them or approved them, authorized them, or continued them. He was the final judge. He established in his domain what was right and wrong, what would be punished and not, what would be enforced and what would be tolerated. And so he's a just king, not just because his will is accomplished, although it is, right? He, he rules over nations. He takes off of thrones and puts onto thrones, as Mary said back in the Magnificat, Luke 1. But he's also the final authority, court of appeal, and judge. And his judgment is just and good. So whatever president we've had or will have, whatever Congress gathers in the nation's capital, the state's capital, whatever city council gathers in Wolfworth or Lubbock, will one day account to him because he is the king of kings, judge of judges, president of presidents, you know, whatever kind of image we want to use. Uh, he is the one who is just and true, and our ways must conform to his. And he is all-powerful, never weak or powerless, and thwarted by spiritual or earthly evil. Great and glorious, just and true, is our all-powerful king. And so I just want to say that this, the saints sing God's praise, and it's so hard for us to stop and join them. To just praise it takes deliberate, uh, particularly these days, it takes deliberate decisions not to fill your ears or your eyes with entertainment, which we can do all the time. Even good content, like consuming Christian content, podcasts or sermons or, or, or music, you know, that Christians sing about God, even that can keep us from doing our own thinking and meditating and just drawing before our eyes the glorious praise of a great and awesome God. So I want to urge you to think about that as one of the habits and the ways we go about life. Uh, and then also in our Bible reading, to read and hear the scriptures mainly for what they say and show us about God, and to avoid the trap of thinking that you do Bible reading just to get something for yourself today. I, I would encourage you, stop worrying about having a deep experience. I, the, the problem with the evangelical language of the quiet time sort of assumes, one, that you can get it quiet, <laughs> and two that there's some sort of mystical experience that happens in that moment, which sometimes there is. But there's not always. So maybe better just to say, let's read our Bibles and pray. And let's read our Bibles to see who God is first, to see him and praise him. And then I, I want to suggest to you with all confidence that if you will focus your Bible reading on what does this show me about God and how can I praise him, that what you need for your day, the encouragement, sustaining hope, the peace will flow. 
Not every moment, not every day, not every time you sit down to try to read your Bible, but the more you see God for who he is, the more you just adore and worship, the more all those other things will work themselves out, will come. The application will arrive. The conversations with other Christians will strengthen you. The songs we sing will resonate more, even more deeply. Glorify God. He is, his ways and his works are great and glorious. His ways are just and true. He is holy. Which is how they summarize everything they've just said in, in verse 4. So let's, let's then think from God's ways and his works to his uh, glory, his worldwide glory. In verse 4, it turns from it's just the deliberate praise of God to then point 3, right? His um, worldwide glory. Who will not fear? Who will not glorify your name, Lord? Who could possibly see who you are and not be in awe? Because you are holy. It's a summary of, of all that I've just said, right? He's pure, perfect, set apart, distinct. We, we unpacked that some more last week uh, with um, Simeon's prayer. Set apart and distinct from his creation, completely devoted to what he has set himself to do. There is no shadow of turning, no hidden agendas. God is pure and holy. And here we see particularly he alone is holy. There is none other like him. In the Roman world in which Revelation was written, that would have easily resonated with the other gods in the Roman systems, right? Uh, the idols in their towns, the temples and places like Ephesus, the emperor worship that uh, was happening and where they made their emperor a god. <clears throat> um, none of those are holy. Only God is holy. Uh, in our day, we don't, you know, we don't have gods that are personal no, no idol statues very much in American culture, but we have plenty of rivals to him. Plenty of things we take as absolute. We can think about the isms and ideas, progressivism, liberalism, libertarianism, conservatism, capitalism, socialism, all of which may have some insight into the world, none of which should be totalizing, but all of which want to be. <laughs> Political parties want to grab your allegiance and make, you, make, them, make, them, make, them, make themselves everything in your life. All of your decisions filtered through, will it support the Republicans or the Democrats or the Libertarians? Now, we mentioned, you know, sports. Gerald did a great job, right? Sports and celebrities and influencers, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, other media outlets. <clears throat> All these people we give our attention, we give our praise, we are obsessed with or enamored of. None of them are holy. None of them are pure through and through. None of them are great and glorious and just and true in everything they say and do. None of them. <clears throat> And this, of course, includes us. None of us are holy. <laughs> Presidents, justices, bosses, managers, husbands, wives, dads, moms, none of us. God alone. So the, the, <clears throat> the singers here, and their places in Revelation, Christians are called holy. What do we do with that? If he alone is holy, how are we holy? Well, they are holy, the singers are holy, they've been made holy. We are being made holy along with him, but... But where did our holiness come from? Our holiness came as a gracious gift from God, who is himself alone holy. And so he makes us, you know, by the gift of the Father through the Son and the working of the Spirit, he, he makes us into the image of Jesus, but it's a gift we receive. It's something he does in us. So our holiness, like the moon, light reflects the sun. Our holiness reflects the holiness of the God, who alone is holy in himself. He's it. And the only way to become truly holy is to be gazed on him, gaze, have your gaze fixed on him, be like him, be made 
and remade in his image. And so the singers ask, right, who will not fear and glorify? Who will see your holiness, your goodness, all of this about you and, and not praise you, O oh God? <clears throat> and on this side of heaven, we answer, well, it seems like a lot of people, actually, will hear the gospel or know about God or pass by churches or, you know, have some Bible in their background and, and, and then reject and uh, dismiss and even blaspheme. <clears throat> and I, I think... The one symbol I'll, I'll work to unpack here is the idea that they're standing beside the sea of glass before the throne of God. So what, what is that all about? Why, why is where they are important? Well, again, taking the Exodus themes, right? The song of Moses happened because God had brought Israel through the sea. He had parted the waters, uh, and they were separated and then closed them back over Pharaoh. So they were in Egypt, and now they are separated by the Red Sea uh, in victory on the other side of the waters. <clears throat> well, this separation that the saints experience here, this sea before the throne of God isn't a horizontal body of water. It's more like the vertical one. They've, they've passed through the firmament into the heavens. So remember Galatians, not sorry, Genesis, the second day. Now the waters above are separated from the waters below. Waters below are gathered in the seas. Well, this sea before the throne of God, I want to submit to you, is the waters above, where God now reigns over the heavens, and the saints have passed through them into the glorious throne room of heaven. They haven't been delivered on a horizontal level. They've been delivered into the presence of God. And so they see more clearly than we do. And they, beholding God's glory, are like nobody can see this and not be in awe. Nobody can get here and not glorify. And they're right. Nobody will see God's glory and be in God's presence and not be struck with fear and honor to God. Now, that might be fear and the like, terror, honor and the like, oh no, I can't get away from you, sense. Or it might be fear and the awe and joy and glory in that we praise your name forever, sense. But everyone who sees God's glory bows. Will you bow in joy and delight or will you bow in fear and terror? Well, beloved, as Gerald said earlier, that is up to you. You see, I mean, you're hearing of the glory of God right now. And I'm telling you that that glory is available to you with joy and awe if you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ. If you will conquer the beast in his image and the number of his name, at least in this way, by recognizing sin in your life and Satan's temptations of you, confessing that sin to God and trusting him for mercy and forgiveness because Christ died in your place. If you can see his redemption now, you will see in wonder and joy then. But if you reject it now, you won't get away. The tone is in the midst of all these plagues, right? I mean, judgment is falling. That they're, they're singing knowing that the final wrath is about to fall. And I would spare you. John, who wrote Revelation, would spare you. Turn to Christ and live. Talk to me, Gerald, anyone with us. Be saved. Christian, beloved, don't you find that at the end of the day, you do just have to join? I mean, the question is answered. Who can? Well, not me. Of course. At the end of the day, you just have to stop and marvel. Say, God is so good. 
when you slow down enough and your thoughts calm enough and you're aware of yourself and the work that God has done and who he is, don't you just find it erupting out of you? Maybe not in spontaneous song, but in spontaneous thought and sort of an overwhelming emotion. Again, not all the time, but at moments, like God is just good. He's amazing. He He saved me. He's working his global glory. Who cannot fear and glorify? He alone is holy. Because you've seen God's righteous acts. That's where the song ends, right? Why will the world come and glorify? He alone is holy. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Faithful, loyal, gracious, steadfast love of God has been revealed to you. So you and I sing the song of the Lamb too. Uh, That song, it first occurs in Revelation, at Revelation 5. I think, suspect, it's the same song. From Revelation 5 to Revelation 14, the 144,000 are taught a new song. And here in Revelation 15, we hear them singing it. Here's Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. Why? Because no one is holy, right? I said that. God alone is holy. So no one is able to open the scroll and look into it. And John, I began to be loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the, and one of the elders in the heavenly throne room scenes says to me, Weep no more, look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. John sees God the Father, right? And in the vision, he doesn't actually describe God very clearly because the light of his glory is so blinding. <clears throat> Who can open the scroll? Well, nobody can. Oh, no, no, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's conquered. Now, how does a lion conquer? Tearing, pouncing, killing. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, which is the Messiah, right? How does a king conquer? By mustering, marching, and destroying. And so when John hears, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, surely, if you're thinking normally, that's what he thinks, right? Lions tear, kings muster. But then the very next verse is what he sees. That's a theme all through Revelation, right? What do you hear? What do you see? And then how is it explained? So the lion, the king, and in five six, John sees between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain. I don't know exactly how you see a standing lamb as if it had been killed, but John knew what it was. We know who he is: the crucified and resurrected Jesus who conquered like a lion and like a king by being a lamb. He conquered by dying. Who does that? God does that. Great and awesome. Shocking beyond belief that God conquered by sending his son to die. What more clearly shows his righteous acts that they are singing in verse 4. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Your faithful, steadfast, loyal, perfect goodness, love. What more clearly shows that than his son's victory over Satan and sin and death by dying in our place? What more clearly demonstrates the severity of sin and the severity of God's love more than it required the death of Jesus as our substitute to save us? And so these singers who conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, how do they conquer? 
Well, they conquer like the lamb conquered. Not by mustering and marching, but by, Revelation 12 tells us, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. The lamb had cleansed them with his blood and his death, and they bore witness to Christ and his reign. For they loved not their lives even unto death. They conquer like the lamb conquered by being faithful all the way to death. Because they know they will pass through the heavens and stand on a sea that is glass and not chaos. It is calmed and tamed and pacified because of the power of God in the heavens. And seeing great and mighty are your deeds, just and true are your ways. Who could not glorify you? In fact, all the nations, all the nations will come and worship. So it's the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, but it's, it's exactly, the pattern is exactly opposite, actually. So in, in Exodus, God sends plagues, rescues his people through the waters, and then they sing. And, and they sing, and they, and they bring them to his, to his temple, uh, which is where Exodus 15 ends, right? They, they come through their lamb, and now he's going to plant them in their place. And Gerald, Gerald's right. This, this is now ultimately fulfilled in, in us, right? This is exactly backwards in Revelation. The saints are gathered to him, and then they sing in his temple, and then the plagues come. Because this is a victory that anticipates the final victory. This is not marching and mustering this is being faithful to the end. This is faithful testimony, witness to God, and overcoming by not loving our lives so much as to shrink even from death. And notice what they sing. When you were vindicated on the other side of death, and you see the glory of God, and I see the glory of God, what would you think we would sing when the wrath of God was coming? Yes, finally, they're going to get theirs. But what do the saints sing? Yes. Finally, the nations will worship you. There's a shift even in the Exodus imagery from vindication of God's people and destruction of his enemies to the vindication of God's people and display of his righteousness that draws people to him. When Jesus said it in John, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It's in his crucifixion, in his death, in his conquering uh, through sacrifice that he draws men and women from every tribe and tongue and language and people. And that's what they mean. They don't mean every person from every nation will come worship. They, they do mean that in verse 4. Everyone will fear and glorify, but not everyone will worship. Uh, but men and women from, from every nation will. As the gospel goes forth, as Christ is lifted up, as, as by the work of the Spirit, eyes are opened so we see God's righteous acts. Whether that's through the work of the International Mission Board or our conversations with our next-door neighbors. The Spirit through the Word and the witness we bear displaying God's mighty saving acts in Christ. To gather a choir. <laughs> to gather a choir from all over the globe to sing the praises of God because we've been saved by his sacrifice. Let's pray. What joy is available to us, Lord God, moving into this year? Because we know hope. We know confidence. We can have certainty. The Lamb has conquered, and so will we. By the grace of your Spirit, and our faithfulness to the end. Keep us, Lord God. Strengthen us in this hope. Secure us 
as we trust in the work of your spirit to do the sealing that you have sent him to do, that Christ asked you to send him to do and has. And reveal your righteous works through us. Reveal your glorious goodness through us. Do it in Jesus' name. Amen.